Greetings, friends. Chris, Bill, it's good to see you see you both once again after our brief hiatus. I loved doing the uh, the Advent series with you both, and so I'm glad that we're able to come back together. This is, of course, the end of Christmas. This is January 5th as we're recording this. So we are at the end of Christmastide slash the beginning of Epiphany. Um, Epiphany starts tomorrow. So yeah, I'm looking forward, looking forward to this. Yeah, before we read, before we hear the gospel, just just a quick note for those of you who might not know, the church has been celebrating Epiphany for a long time. I mean, in the 300s, I think maybe even as as early as the late 200s, the practice starts to emerge. This is off the top of my head, so I may have some of the dates a little off, but it's right from the jump, the church is celebrating Epiphany, although early on, Epiphany was associated primarily with the birth of Jesus, so what we think of as Christmas. And over time, the church has come to, Epiphany is essentially connected both to the birth of Jesus and to his baptism, so that what happens in the cradle at Christmas and what happens at, in the in the waters of his baptism at the launch of his ministry, all of that is epiphanic, right? There's a shining forth of who he is. And and we'll come back to this a lot today, but I think the theological point to register, register there is that every part of Christ's life is whole. Like his life is a seamless garment and every moment of his life is epiphany in one way or another. The transfiguration is epiphanic. The baptism is epiphanic, but so is his birth. And so is the cross. I mean, that's the Johannine point. If I am lifted up, I am the light of the world. Like I will draw all people to me. So I think that's probably for those who are not, are not yet fully acclimated to kind of liturgical cycles and the ways in which these liturgical feasts have been set and how the readings function. I think it's important to realize that we're marking distinct seasons, but because of it's Jesus life, they overlap and interpenetrate and they're interlaced. You know? So you, you you don't isolate moments of Jesus' life from the, from the whole. For the record, my new New Year's resolution is to use the word epiphanic more this year than I did last year. I think Have you, you already used it more? You just met it. Done. <laughs> 2023 is my year. All right, with that fitting irreverence, let us hear the gospel of our Lord, Father Bill. Ouch. Which is from our Epiphany texts, obviously not. Yeah, in the RCO, which which we'll link again. As always. Chapter two, right? Yes, Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men, secretly ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The Gospel of our Lord. Glory to you, Lord Christ. I think it might, as a way of beginning, I could share this poem. Robert Jensen wrote, I, I have three separate poems that he wrote about epiphany let me let me read them this this trio of poems just as a way of orienting our conversation about this text so this this they're untitled at least as i have them so this is the first one all of them as i said are epiphany poems they are mystery are they persians or from the great and evil babylon the place of exile why does the bible put them in this story Almost as great a mystery as why God puts our crowd of Jews and Gentiles there with Mary and her child. Let us worship with these pilgrims. Perhaps the child will shine on us and make all clear. And then a second. What are we really, we three Eastern Magi? Astrologers, as one of us presumes, or kings? as in the manger scenery. Perhaps we are no fixed beings at all, figments of someone's imagination. But what if this were God's own imagining, that we're really what we really are? And then lastly, the beast this year has slouched a good bit closer, stitched up of words without flesh and flesh without words. We, too, are at once more angry and more quiescent, mirroring what we fear. Mercifully, Bethlehem is already occupied. So, I think this sets us up nicely. His, Jens is acknowledging that we don't quite know who these magi are. Are they, are they sorcerers, astrologers, kings, all of the above? Are they from, what do we mean when we say we're, they're from the East? Or do we mean Persia? Do we mean Babylon? What's their narrative and theological function? Why has Matthew told us about them? How do they factor in the gospel Matthew is, is saying and declaring? And then I love how Jens imagines we are the Magi. And... It's God's imagining of us that makes us who we are. I mean, it, it, that's a, a very Jensonian move to make. And then, of course, that last poem that I read is a play on the famous reference about the beast slouching toward Jerusalem to be born, the Yeats poem. And it's, a, it's an affirmation that Christ is Lord, that Bethlehem is not empty, right? that the, the, world, the world is right because its king is in it. So I think that 
again sets the sets the table for us. Father Bill, why don't you start? What what stands out to you? What's striking you from this story this year? I think fairly simple things. Um, again, you guys, you guys can take the tools and and dig really, really deep. I'll just a uh, uh, maybe more surface level thought is this past Sunday I, I gambled and I wanted to talk to the church about goal setting, which could become horribly cliche and not fun to listen to. But what I did was. I wanted to capture like the spirit of people who wake up on January 1st and say, I need to get some things in order and help not have that end by January 15th, right? Like the joke was everybody read Genesis chapter one today, you know? Um, And so what I did was I talked about the life cycle of our goals and how our goals, you could view our goals as having to go through the liturgical calendar during the year. And so to be very brief, I spoke about how our goals should begin in Advent, meaning that they should begin with an announcement, not so much our picking. And I talked about the difference between the way Adam and Eve ate the fruit they took of it and ate versus the way the disciples ate the Eucharist, they received it, Mm. and how it may be good for our intimacy and our prayer and our discernment to have the Holy Spirit, you know, whisper to us what he wants us to do this year as opposed to us grabbing things that yep. seem like right and yep. so we, we we were talking about that and i quickly i quickly skated over epiphany and i basically said our goals need to go through a revelation that changes everything and when i said it i noted like in my gut that that felt almost like a theme for our church this year is this this idea that when we're living in a season of, you know, as Ignatius would say, desolation, or the Enneagram would say season of stress versus a season of growth. When we're in a season of tense anxiety, we tend to stick to our first thoughts and hold on to them tightly and force force ourselves to see the court there. And epiphany, epiphany really speaks to the character of a person who can pivot who can adapt, who can change course. And so for me, that's these readings, even John the Baptist in the, in the water saying, Jesus, you're, you're supposed to baptize me. Like that's the first and obvious thought, but the epiphany is like, no, John, you're going to baptize me. And John has to pivot and baptize Jesus, which is not the plan. It's not what should be happening, but it's what the revelation brought. Mm-hmm. Or it's the cliche verse here, the wise men, they left a different way than they came. Like this ability, and I have more to say about that, but this ability to pivot. And I just feel like what you said before, how like every day of Jesus's life was an epiphany and it's an epiphany for us that we don't have to become slaves to our first thoughts, our first inclinations, our initial goals, slaves to what we think is wrong and what we need to fix, what we think is right and we don't need to fix. Like we can move in the year in the spirit of epiphany and pivot and breathe and be dynamic. And I think emotionally that is very healthy and something this year. So that's kind of where my thought process is. You know, I I think, gosh, I I don't even know how to work through all this thought exactly, but there's a way, there's a paradox that I'm seeing that's showing itself to me. 
that there's a relationship between how deeply rooted I am in in the good and how capable I am of moving quickly or lightly that that traveling light as a pilgrim is essential but I can only travel light as a pilgrim if I'm deeply rooted if I've learned to dwell like the tree planted by the rivers of water right there's there's a certain those two things have to hold together if if I if I don't have that deep rootedness I'm just a a rolling stone rather than a pilgrim traveling light but if I'm deeply rooted without that readiness to pivot then i'm i'm not a deeply rooted tree i'm just i'm a wall you know, I'm, I'm a stone set up to guard a boundary and I, I think again i'm intuiting my way here but i i think that one of the marks of our lives the the world you and i the three of us and the people we care about have grown up in and I would assume everybody, if not or almost everybody who's listening to us, have grown up in a world in which we're too busy for our roots to ever get deep, but we struggle with making the pivots we need to make because our life feels too cluttered. And oddly, the more we are deeply committed to the things that should not be changing, I, th- I think the more we're able to pivot from one decision to the next or one moment to the next without grinding the gears to mix my metaphor. I I don't know if if that's making sense or not. It's something again, that I'm just sensing as I'm hearing what you're saying. I I think it's perfect because again, like on the basketball court in order to pivot one foot needs to be firmly planted Mm. so that the other foot can, can spin and move and observe the landscape and, and what's happening around you. So I think, it's a brilliant example where there has to be some sort of anchoredness in order to be able to pivot. Otherwise, it's what James says. You're just driven along by the wind, right? We don't want that. That's not pivoting. Yes. Yes. That's, getting, that's getting taken. Mm-hmm. You know, but also pivoting means I'm, I'm changing my perspective often and maybe even aggressively, but still anchored to a particular point. So now that I have kind of opened that door, I'm, I'm starting to recognize I mean, in the Pentecostal circles I grew up in, I don't know, Bill, that you would have ever heard this. I'd love to know if you did, but Brewer, I'm sure you did. In moments where people would come to the altar during camp meeting or revival service and would be praying to be filled with the Spirit, there would be people gathered around them trying to urge them into that experience. And it was a it was cliched, but there would be people saying, hold on, hold on, meaning stay in this moment of prayer grind as deeply as you have to grind into the presence of God and be tenacious about it. And then at the same time, other people would be saying, let go, let go right? in release, let, let go of all those things that you need to let go of in order to be present. And even as a kid, I remember the dissonance of, wait a minute, <laughs> which, what am I supposed to do? Hold on or let go. But there's real wisdom in that, right? Like it's folksy wisdom, but there is a wisdom in it. And I, th- I think that is this, right? The, another thing that came in our spirituality, and, and all of this is in scripture, of course, is, you know, we, we sing this song all the time, I shall not be moved. Like a tree planted by the waters, I shall not be moved. We, we probably should break. Brewer, you want to you sing a, a line of it for us? Drop a few bars? 
No, I'll wait till uh, Father JP joins us or Danielle okay. or someone. All right, Father JP, we're we're waiting on you to send us in a version of this. Or yeah, Danielle and JP together. So I shall not be moved. But we were constantly praying for a move of the Spirit in that not moving. Right? We're not going to be moved. And what's going to keep us from moving is the move of the Spirit. And I, and I think that that's the wisdom bill that you that you've pulled up here that you've drawn our attention to is that we need we need in some ways to be immovable so that we can be movable in the right ways and we need to be movable in the right ways so that we can be immovable in in the ways that matter i mean my 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 heart feels heavy for this personally because i feel like this is this is it's troubling because I feel like that balance, I think balance or fullness or like you said, seamlessness is, is something sorely lacking. And so I think we live in this very unfortunate either or moment because of strife and anxiety and trauma. You know, and so like what you're describing feels so right to me, but like this is this is the ache of pastoring. I feel like where like I hear it, it feels so right. And you just say like I'm, my own personal moment is like, Lord, like how can we have the eloquence and the spirit to convey that thought to a community of people that can help each other be that way this year? Like I don't, I wouldn't want an individual person to hear that and say, okay, I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to start being anchored. And I'm going to pivot at the same time. Like, how do we, how do we teach and pray for and intercede for our churches to be communities that can help us? Like, I can't do that by myself. What you just described, I need you, you know, I need both Chris's, my wife and a community of other people to help me stay anchored where I'm supposed to be and to know where I'm supposed to be. And then to back off and pivot and be a little lighthearted in other areas, like, that sounds really emotionally healthy. The path there feels rough. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm feeling that, that dissonance in my, in my spirit. And just to add to that, I mean, I think not wanting to go far down this trail, but <clears throat> I guess I also feel a kind of conviction because as we're, as this is being named, it strikes me that like, I'll use we here. I guess in that, sorry to be so abstract, but we are at, it's, we are so often the exact opposite of this, right? So like movable precisely in the ways we need to be immovable, Yep. but immovable in the ways that we need to be moved. So it's a sort of strange kind of shallowly, stubbornly rooted yeah. tree or yep. something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's, yes. I mean, may, maybe since we're searching for metaphors, you know, what we need to be our doors that when they're shut are securely shut, but can be opened. But that our lives need to have the kind of stability of of those heavy doors, right, that, that mark off spa- spaces as home, but can be opened. Right. And, you know, can God can open that door and no one, no one can shut it. And I I think the ache, 
is the right response and and the conviction for sure let's talk a little bit about we'll circle back on on this but let's talk a little bit about what why is matthew telling us this story do you think why the magi i mean this doesn't come up in luke right in luke we get the shepherds in magi we get i mean in matthew we get the magi why what's important about the fact that that it's these guys i mean traditionally we think of them as three although we don't know that for sure yeah i mean ways i've heard this talked about are things like um as a kind of it it bears witness to the all-encompassing nature of this epiphany Right, that even these light to the Gentiles, yes, right, right, yeah, to the Gentiles, and and even you know whatever they are, right, mm-hmm. wise men, kings, sorcerers, you know, like whatever, but even to these the strain strangers, right, this comes so that kind of that all encompassing nature, and also the kind of you know in Pentecostal churches, I mean, I've also heard it talked about as things like the kind of you know the spirit blowing where the spirit will is this sort of um yeah even among even among these or you know to say it differently right that god is there is nowhere that god's not at work right. and there are people even confounding and surprising for us people uh who are attentive to that yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Augustine, in his sermons on Epiphany, at least one of them, he draws attention to the relationship between the Magi and Pilate at the at the beginning and the end of the gospel, and that these are two Gentile, or these are Gentile lords who name Jesus rightly as King of the Jews. They recognize his his lordship as King of the Jews for the sake of the world, and I, I think that's not accidental i mean he's noticing something that the gospel is telling us right that jesus lordship as israel's messiah is a lordship for the sake of the world and and so the the lords of the world the, the nations of the earth are recognizing it and of course that's deeply rooted in isaiah's prophecy which we'll talk about but i think it reiterates the heart of israel's calling to be the people for the sake of the world and israel's messiah then is the one who accomplishes the fulfillment of that mission of israel serving the world so the the magi are testifying to that i love jensen's suggestion that these are babylonians perhaps people from the land of exile former oppressors who are coming to to acknowledge their rightful rightful king one of the things i stressed in in the sermon this past sunday where the church where i was speaking they observed epiphany last week so they could observe the baptism of the lord this this week but i i drew attention to the fact that the we often talk about the wise men seeking jesus right i mean how many times have we read church signs or heard sermons about wise men still seeking him right but that's not how the story starts i mean the star appears to them unasked right they they see the star at its rising and they can describe the instant it appeared to them. 
So there's some kind of experience, something that happens. And Bill, this I think goes to your point about we can't we can't do the seeking. We can't do what is ours to do until something has happened that we could never have done for ourselves. There has to be that moment of epiphany in which the star shines. The star comes unasked. And many of us will have been shaped in Christianities that are all about the effort we're supposed to put forth, that we're supposed to seek him. And we are, of course, we are supposed to seek him. But we can only seek him because he's called us. I mean, that wonderful line from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, you know, when I think it's Jill is crying out for Aslan to save her and suddenly she's in Narnia and there is Aslan and she says, you know, thank you for hearing me. And he says, oh, child, you could not have called on me if I had not called on you first. Hmm. Right. That I think we have to reiterate here. This is not about you making all the effort necessary to put your life together. It's about noticing when the star appears and then being ready to travel light, then being ready to seek out what needs to be sought out. Because they are uprooted to be differently rooted, right? This star disrupts their life first and and then reorders it. Well, and so with that said, look at the difference. So like they're, they're interrupted. Their worship is interrupted, their lifestyle, their flow, their liturgy, mm. their culture is interrupted by this star, and they immediately pack up and go. And right. then in the text, it says, when Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And so you see, you so, so take them moving, Herod being troubled, and then when the wise men see Mary and Jesus and the star rest, they, they begin to rejoice exceedingly with great joy it says and so you see in the spirit of an epiphany person a person who can be moved by that sort of revelation this this lightheartedness this ability to go this ability to worship and 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 rejoice over something other than itself and then in Herod you see what Chris Brewer was saying before a rigidity where it shouldn't be like he cannot get off his throne and bring those people to find Jesus with the wise men. And because of that, there's agitation and the agitation spills over, you know, from, from his oval office into the rest of the, it says all Jerusalem with him. And so again, like that ache in me is like, there's this way in which, and I, I not, not to blend, but I think this heads towards holy innocence too, where this, it, this yes, ability it to want to hold on to my life the way it is and never let it go and never let anything penetrate it. It makes me anxious. It makes the people closest to me anxious. And eventually it destroys the innocence in me and around me yeah. to hold on to that and to not let go of it. And meanwhile, you have like enemies, quite possibly, of Israel showing up and just being completely floored at every turn. And in this like joyful, youthful way, in a way that matches the baby in the manger, they're they're finding him, they're they're following stars, they're rejoicing, they're offering gifts, and it's like, man, that that dichotomy is worth praying over this epiphany season, I feel like. Absolutely. And without going too far afield here, I the the context in which we're all living is one in which the debacle at the Capitol happened on January the 6th, not that long ago. And the the political unrest that, that is there, I mean, I think 
that's there in our lives is resonant with the political unrest that's in the text as it must be and herod's fear and the fear of jerusalem are different fears so he he fears apparently losing his place they fear what he will do to keep his place right they're they're not they're not afraid with him because they want him to be in that place at least not all of them are I think what they fear is what will come if he is grasping for that place. But regardless, I I think you've touched a nerve, Bill. I mean, this is, our politics are almost always a testament to what it is we truly fear. Hmm. And this is why Jesus politics are so unnerving for people like Pilate and Herod. And why it's so remarkable that the Magi are able to acknowledge it, to acknowledge him. And, yeah, I mean, I think we don't have to say a lot about that. Just draw attention to, like, this This is a highly relevant <laughs> story right now. Yeah, I mean, those images, HBO has a great, I'd say, as unbiased as a documentary can be, uh, I think it's called Four Hours at the Capitol. And it's essentially, I think they did a good job, um, a minus job on making it just video of what happened, almost like you see with like 9-11 videos, sort of just like a, and it is like, you know, it is like the the extended blown up, hyperbolized version of what it means to be rigid and unmoving in all the wrong ways and how it causes you to violate your own standards that you've stood on until that point. Yeah. You know, and we don't have to get into the details of what I mean by that, unless you, you want to take us there, Chris, but again, it's like that noise, that chaos, that harm, that fear, the psychological damage that comes after it for hundreds and hundreds of people that were there that day you know, on, on, in the Capitol and storming it, that's happening. And I think sometimes maybe we're so inundated with the big pictures on Fox and CNN that we don't realize like that storming of the Capitol is happening in my gut so much. And so many people in the church, I can think right now, like names and faces are just going through my mind of people that I pastor and like, they don't realize that they're being stormed or storming. Mm Mm-hmm in that in that way and and man if there was a time to say jesus please wake up and say peace be still i feel like that's this would be a nice time to to have him say that yeah but i i think that's i mean let's stay let the gospel kind of direct our thoughts here notice what the magi do in the way they interact with herod so when they come in there's a kind of naivete uh, seemingly I, i don't know how to read it exactly why they would think it's almost as if they assume Herod must be glad that the Messiah is born. Wow. Right. They go straight to him. They don't try to circumvent him. They're not thinking of this as a subversive birth. They're thinking of this as something all of Israel must be in joy. Mm. They come straight to the heart to Jerusalem. They go straight to Herod, the King. They, they, either naively or 
in good faith. I don't know how to read it exactly. But they, they seem to assume, oh, he's going to delight. And Herod, of course, plays along. Right? But then he starts working in these underhanded ways to figure out where is this king going to be born. And he's working his scholars on the one hand. And man, I'd love to riff a little bit on scholars and academics who do the, the king's dirty work for him. But be that as it may. then But he also does it with the Magi. He calls them in to have a secret conversation. Right. And they, again, they up to a certain point, they go along. And either naively or in good faith, they're trying to be clear about what what has happened, what they think it means. But at the end of the story, they have a dream. They're warned in a dream and they went home another way. They avoid Herod at the end. And I, I think, Bill, what you said a moment ago about what's happening in our guts. Like, at their guts, these magi were open to the warning of the Spirit. Stay away from Herod. Go home another way. And the creativity of the Spirit, I think, has to kind of bubble up from our gut. It has to come up from our unconscious and show us another way. I don't think that there is going to be a moment in which Jesus calms the storm of our political upheaval. But I do think the people of God can be open at their heart, at the depth of their heart, to the Spirit in such a way that we can start to see another way to go home. Right, That we can evade when we need to evade. And there's a there's a kind of peacemaking that's tied up with cleverness. You know, that line in Jesus, you have to be harmless as doves, but clever as serpents, or shrewd as serpents. And we often hear those as you know two distinct things, but they're I think I they're they're in, intimately related. I'm able to be harmless if I have the creativity to know how to avoid the conflict that evil is trying to force on me. Right. And the, and the Magi don't know at first, they don't walk into the conflict, assuming it. But once it comes clear, because they're listening to, to their own hearts, rightly, they, and they're not kept from hearing the truth by fear. They're not so afraid that they can't hear what the spirit is saying, but they, they finally hear it. And they go home another way. And that's, I think, what we need. We need people who know how to get quiet enough in their dreams, in their heart of hearts, in their communing with their own hearts, to hear the Spirit whispering, go a different way. And as I hear you saying that, man, I'm thinking, like, I want to be the kind of person where diversity, like people ideas that are not like me or mine can come into my life, can feel comfortable coming into my life, but then not have to be warned later not to come back into my life again. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's just like that, that, like, I guess maybe you, you did this when you did the, uh, the teaching on Mary a few months ago, this like spirit of Herod that can be alive and well in all of us. It's a spirit that makes it unsafe for 
difference to dwell too long in our presence. Right? So the, the Magi feel comfortable going initially, but then they're told you can't go back there. And I feel like when you look at uh, like a history of the Christian church, a local Christian church or whatever, unhealthy churches only ever attract more of itself. Right. And anytime difference comes in, it has to, it leaves and it's probably told, don't, don't go back there again. It's just, it's going to be a migraine for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm hearing this like in my own self saying there's two things that Herod did that, that I wonder about in myself and that I'm, I'm pleased to enter the Lenten season after this with these thoughts is a, am I the kind of person where difference can comfortably come into my life and then want to come back diversity culturally, theologically, whatever, right? And then and then two, Herod asked everybody else to do the work, and then once the work was done, he would go, right? So you go search the scriptures, and you go search and try to find the child, and when those things are done, I'll go. And I just wonder, like, is, is my life a life where I'm causing others to work really, really hard so that I can have a clear path toward what I want, right? And like that, that just feels like it's like one of those convicting questions, like uh, Brewer just said before, like, mm -hmm. does my life put a demand on other people to work really, really hard, where I wait and, and then feed off of their hard work to have an easier existence myself? And I can promise you, if my family was here, they would give a hearty amen. Yes, you shouldn't be wondering, that's the case. But these are just the thoughts, like in, in real time, disjointed hitting me about the stuff that you guys are saying. And I'm feeling heavier and heavier toward this season of epiphany being, at least over here in our context, very vital and and prophetic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Brewer. I think too. Yeah, I mean, I feel I feel I agree, Bill. Like, um, not that you're Herod, but I feel <laughs> that same kind of that I feel that same kind of you know conviction and heaviness. But I also just feel such a deep longing i mean wanting that in our in our world in our communities in our churches like these people and i think back to that sort of earlier point about the whole of christ's life being epiphanic i mean this is this is how jesus lives right i mean with unbelievable kind of cleverness and and you know a presence in situations that is, uh, you know, for those with fears, disarming in a lot of ways. I mean, it stirs up kind of unholy fears in others and in other ways, but like, you know, um, I'm just thinking about how time and time again, what he does is sort of baffling and he finds, you know, these other ways. I mean, he lives this, this wildly creative life, but also not in naivete asks the kinds of questions or, or, or shows up with the sort of presence, not unlike the Magi do with Herod, where it's a kind of like, why wouldn't you be glad about this? Yeah. You know, this is good news, right. To those who are, who are startled and, and afraid. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to ask for, you know, the, the process then of, of how we do this or how we can live these lives. But also I kind of want to ask for that, ask for that, you know? Well, I think 
I think there may be a clue in the text itself. I, I'm I'm really struck by that line that the Magi follow the star, but they're seeking the child. Right? They follow the star, but they're seeking the child. And I I do think the child is at the heart of Jesus' teaching. Like he not only becomes a child. And that already tells us the truth, right? That God comes among us as a babe in the womb. That's how it begins. And how God's coming among us begins. And because Christ's life is seamless, he is always also that child. As he grows, he doesn't grow away from his childhood. His childhood matures with him. He he is the child as the man. He never loses his childlikeness. He never loses touch with his childlikeness and not simply his innocence or his imagination, but his utter dependency. Like that, his readiness to be utterly dependent on Mary is what his moment of death is. Like he's never more childlike than in that last breath he takes. Right? He, so all all the way through his life, he lives this childlikeness, and I I think the text is pointing us to if we want to to live with this kind of sensitivity, if we want to be able to pivot when the Spirit calls us to pivot, we have to always be seeking that that childlikeness. We have to, as I said a couple of years ago, we have to, or maybe it was last Christmas, we have to grow down into our childlikeness. Instead of growing up out of it, we have to grow down into it. And I I think that's how, at least a good way of seeing what makes the Magi the Magi, is that they do, they do this with, with a kind of childlike innocence and purity and delight. I mean, they're overjoyed. They're beside themselves with joy when they, when they realize we're here. We see him now. Right, we, we, we've seen this child, and it's the vision of the child that makes them aware of what Herod is not. Right, they're they're unsure of how to engage Herod until they've seen the child, and once they have a vision of him, and I, I to me, that's the word of the text. Like the only thing that's actually going to address the anxiety in our lives, the confusion in our politics, the troubledness that's in our souls that you guys are feeling pastorally, the only thing that's going to address address that for any of us is a vision of the child. This is God nursing and puking in his mother's lap. Like that's the vision that has to happen to capture us. And then I think, I don't want to go too far with that, but for now, I mean, I, I don't think you can go too far with it, but I don't want to just run on with it. I want you to get to jump in and respond. But I think that seeing God as this child, it opens us up to finding our own childlikeness as well. So I'll, I'll say more about that in a moment, but just kind of initial response. Does that, does that make sense? I mean, that's not a, a way, but it is a way. It's not a technique, but it is, it is a way of saying, of answering that desire you had, Brewer. If we want that kind of creativity in our lives, well, we find it in a vision of the child. And say that again, Chris, you said seeing God is a way of nurturing that childlikeness in us. Is that what you said? Yeah, I think it will turn us back to finding our own inner childlikeness. Like for me to see God as this child 
enables me to recognize myself as child to to integrate my own history i think a, a lot of a lot of us live having lost touch with our own childhood and with our own inner child like psychologically we're we're cut off from our own playfulness our own purity of intention our own sensitivity and awareness about the moment all all of all that is our our readiness to be dependent upon others like i I think a lot of us have lost but life disrupts us ruptures our lives in such a way that we get cut off from that and seeing jesus the child is a call to become childlike in in the way that he is but that will also mean my childlikeness coming alive I mean, I'm going to like this, you know, we know, we know that glory is, is a word for weightiness, like kabod, like there's heaviness here, but I think a vision of the glory makes us lighter. A, a vision of God and his glory, because he's this God and this is his glory. It enables us to live with a kind of levity, a kind of lightheartedness in which we're not weighed down with the cares of life. Right? We're, we're free enough to live life abundantly. Like we, we can live lightly precisely because we have a sense of God's weightiness. Right. Come to me. You yeah, are weary and heavy laden. Yeah. His yoke has to be the heaviest one imaginable. And yet he says, when you put it on, it's easy and light. So that, that speaks to the glory that you just described. I I love what you said before, Chris, you do this all the time. I can name when you've done it in our other podcasts, like, you know, when John the Baptist was upset with what Jesus was doing, as opposed to what he wasn't doing. And when you talked about how, when Ahaz was asked to give a sign, it was actually God who asked him, you, you, it turned, you remind me that you have to read the Bible well, which I thank you for on a regular basis. But it uh, does help to actually read what the text says. You read the words, time. the words, yes, the words that they, they matter. They do, in fact, matter. When you said that they didn't start by seeking, they started by seeing a star that led to their seeking. What I wrote down here, maybe for just like the, the closing of the sermon, when you don't have much else to say, but you need to say something, it's, this story itself is the star that we're meant to follow mm-hmm. and watch all the different places it rests. It's going to rest on the cross. It's going to rest on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's going to rest, you know, on a mountain at noon uh, with, you know, the, the woman who comes, who's thirsty. It's it's going to rest on all these places. And I think like, mm-hmm. like the question Brewer had is the question is why I feel the heaviness. Like, what do we do? to to be less Herod and more, you know, wise men and women. And it's like, just follow this story. The story is our guiding star, right? And follow this year, all the places where it comes to rest for moments and weeks and months, you know, five weeks of Lent, it rests, few weeks of Easter, it rests, Pentecost, it rests, right? Just watch all the places it rests and see what it does to you. Like, I, I almost feel like this is a call to really observe ourselves this year. Like to just stop making decisions every time we think something new and just observe what the story does to you this year, what it provokes, what it doesn't, and measure yourself and read yourself and take a barometer of just like, 
what are the provocations happening in me as the story of Jesus rests on all these peaks and valleys throughout the year? Yes. And I think contemplate Jesus. The star rests over the body of Jesus. But the body of Jesus is never never exists in isolation. Mary is there. Joseph is there. The shepherds and angels are there. The magi are there. We are there. I mean, that's the line in the Jensen poem. Like the mystery is this company of Jews and Gentiles across time. We've been gathered around the body of this this child. And we we should observe what's happening in us as we contemplate him in the company of those, those witnesses. And, but our, our eyes are fixed on him. Our eyes are fixed on him. And, and therefore, as, as we talked about yesterday, Brewer in that poem, when our eyes are fixed on him, our eyes are fixed. Like they're healed by attending to him. And, but observing what's happening in us while we look at him. Like having a sensitivity for, I sense, I sense I'm drawn in this way. I'm troubled in this way. I'm delighted in that way as, as I contemplate him. Let let me, on Sunday, when I, I preached, I talked about the connection between the, the gospel text in Isaiah 60, arise, shine, your light has come, which is a, a prophecy that Matthew takes up. There's a reference to the nations bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh into into Jerusalem and i i pointed out the ways in which that isaiah 60 text is in, is an interpretation of an older prophecy isaiah 9 so roughly you know matthew's gospel is written about 500 years or so after the isaiah 60 prophecy would have been written and the isaiah 60 prophecy was was written about five generations after the isaiah 9 prophecy so these are working out over time the isaiah 9 is kind of the originating vision and the and the line that we hear every christmas the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwell in deep darkness on them a light has shone or the light has shined and I, I'm, there are lots of ways to read it, and I'm not going to go through all of the various ways to exegete it. But what struck me is that you get there, you get three three distinctions in that Isaiah, original Isaianic vision. The first one is you get a difference between darkness and deep darkness. You get a, di- a difference between people who walk and people who dwell. And you get a difference between people who see a light and people who are illuminated people who become a light have a light shine on them or from them and i think there are levels of readings here like in some ways we've got darkness and deep darkness as a a deepening of what's already wrong so one way of reading it and it's often translated this way deep darkness is the shadow of death so it's darkness deepened it's darker darkness, the shadow of death. So one way of reading that original vision is those who walk in darkness will see a light, but those who are in deep darkness, they can't see a light because their eyes are dead. They are dead. They're in death's shadow, but on them a light has shined. 
So in some way, this is a promise of resurrection. Those who walk in darkness will see light, as the Magi do, but those who are swallowed up by the darkness of death, a light will shine on them. But I, I think we could say more than that, in that not all darkness is bad darkness. There, there are ways in which God divides the light from the darkness, but there are other ways in which God divides the darkness from the darkness. So he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And yet, he wraps himself in darkness. He dwells in unapproachable light. Gregory talks about Moses' ascent up to the peak of the mountain, and when he moves into the cloud, he's in the darkness. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they see Jesus radiating in his clarity, but they don't know how rightly to respond. It's while they're seeing the light that Peter says, let us build three tabernacles. And it's only after the darkness descends on them that they hear, this is my son, listen to him. So there, there's, a, there's a kind of divine darkness that's revelatory. So epiphany is light, but there is an epiphany that comes in the deep darkness. And so what hit me and what I tried to share on Sunday is that there's a bad darkness we just have to walk through toward the light God has given us in the future. But there's a good darkness we have to dwell in the darkness of the mystery of God's goodness, the darkness of the mystery of our own being, the darkness of the mystery of the gospel. We have to dwell in that darkness. And what happens is we are illuminated. We become light. And that darkness is, is in the depths of our pain. So when we're feeling this anxiety, when we're up against these troubles, when we're sensing all of this unrest, that's a shallow darkness we have to walk through. But the only way to walk through it, to travel through it lightly, is to go deep in the darkness until we're in touch with the, the mystery of God, until we're in touch with the, the gravity, the kabah of God's goodness. And what comes there is that we start to shine. Right? The, the magi, like they see a star, they come to the child, but it lights them up and then they go home illuminated. Right? Who knows what their faces look like when they come home, when, when, they, when they return, wherever it is they came from, return to wherever it is they came from. And so I, I, last thing I'll say here, and then I'll let, let you guys respond. I didn't mean to re-preach the whole sermon, but I'm really fascinated between about the difference between the darkness of Mary's womb and the darkness of Herod's gut. Right, that Herod is devouring. He wants to, and this, Bill, to your point about the slaughter of the innocents, Herod wants to eat everything that threatens him and feed on everything that can sustain his life. But there's a darkness of Mary's womb. I mean, it's her belly too, but it's forming life. It's not consuming, it's forming. It's making the image of God. The image of God is being knit together, bone to bone. And yet in Herod's gut, the image of God is being deformed, pulled apart. And we need to know how to dwell in the womb, not the gut. Yeah, I love that so much, Chris. Um, I wish we could go back in time because I tried to talk about this point on Christmas Eve and it went disastrously. But 
Yeah, I mean, this, the darkness of Mary's womb in which the light of the world shines. Yes. And is found. And I feel this, I mean, I guess what I'm, part of what I'm hearing too is this difference between being held that that darkness of the womb mm-hmm. of the womb being held dwelling bearing down into this deeper darkness yes uh and trying to take hold of the darkness of Herod's gut right where he's going to try to strong arm this he's going to manage it he is going to violate and break and bend the world to his will right and just what an incredible um kind of difference i mean which i guess just gets right back to childlikeness yes absolutely and look at how it makes you so profoundly unaware like herod doesn't even blink at the fact that he just became pharaoh at the beginning of the exodus story like i mean one of the most you know kindergarten level understandings is what pharaoh tried to you know kill those kids and um Herod did the same thing he doesn't even see it like and again you know I'm I'm, I like how we're all coming at this slightly differently like I'm I'm feeling in me while you guys are talking like I've enjoyed doing these with you guys I feel the most profoundly uncomfortable in this one because I'm like introspectively being confronted with like how obvious of a miss is that (laughs) if you're Herod like you don't see you know I mean you, you 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 employ all of these people who can search the scriptures in moments and tell you a town in Bethlehem. And yet you miss the fact that you just became like the great enslaver of the Hebrew scriptures. The minute you were going to slaughter the innocents, like, and missed it entirely. So like that, that healthy fear, we've talked about this before, I think is something we need to sit in and just sit in, in the fact that like, that story of that misunderstanding and that lack of self-awareness is there because it probably has residence in my life. Right. right? But on the flip side with the other epiphany story with John and, and Jesus, I, I think it goes to what, what you were saying before um, Chris, and that if, if Jesus baptizes John, John goes under the water mm. to a, a, a darkness, but a, a lighter darkness, but it, what Jesus is saying is you need to baptize me because I have to go down into a darkness that you couldn't get down into. That's right. Right. And, you know, in the same way that Mary's womb can hold and form God, it's almost like Jesus's womb can, can hold death at the end of the story and reform life into it. Right. I mean, Herod's gut is smaller than Mary's womb. Yeah. The whole, the whole cosmos fits inside Mary. God fits inside Mary. Yes. Yes. And death can fit inside Jesus and be converted. Absolutely. But again, like this calls us to have to sit like it's not Lent yet. I made the comment before. I can't wait for Lent so that I can ponder these thoughts, but it's not Lent yet. Like Lent is an outlet to finally start to say, I'm sorry for this and I'm sorry for that. But it doesn't let you get there so fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have yeah, to yeah. sit in this uncomfortable light that Epiphany shines on you to say, like, man, where am I like headed? Where where are other people agitated because I'm agitated? Where are other people working hard because of the demand I'm putting on their life in a toxic way? Where am I profoundly, you know, unself-aware 
and missing the largest neon signs constantly, right? Like that narcissistic blindness. Like, I, I think we have to sit in that. Like the, the person who's willing to sit in this uncomfortable light of epiphany, I think can have an exciting Lent when it rolls around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amen. But I, I, I do think, speaking of the spirit of epiphany, it's more important that we wonder with the Magi than we fret about Herod or fret with Herod about ourselves. Right? We, I understand your anxiety and your anxiety about the ways in which you might be Herod-y. But the fact is, God's creativity creativity is limitless. And so no matter how much Herod fumes, like God has a way. And this moment is a moment not for fretting, but for wonder. That, that God's ways are so small and subtle and surprising that it's it's unimaginable for the enemy. Like Herod could not have imagined this is the way in which he gets dethroned. Like this impoverished little girl having God in her arms. Like he, that's unimaginable for him. I, I think a couple other points to make that, that I wanted to bring up before we wrap up. One is the detail that the Magi come to see Christ in Bethlehem. Which means they weren't at home, but neither was he. And the line that came to me was, Christ cannot be found at home. We have to leave our home. But when we encounter him, we encounter him in in that place of exile too. So he's not just a child. He's a child who's being forced into exile. So already being forced by Caesar saying all the world has to be taxed. He's moved in the womb. He's moved to Bethlehem from Nazareth. But then he's about to be moved again from Nazareth, I mean, from Bethlehem to Egypt, right? Forced to flee. So he's not just a child. He's an exile. He's a refugee. And there is a way in which our coming to know God happens in exilic moments, in moments in which our lives are off the beaten path. And we, again, we need to wonder at that, not fret about it. Wonder, and and the wonder is, we will be led there. We will be led there. And, And all of the Herods that are trying to stop it won't be able to stop it, like won't be able to keep us from from getting there to where to where the child is however long that takes and of course this is a long journey i mean who knows how long it took these magi to to find the child but but they did they did and they they were able to find a way if even for a moment to to touch that deeper darkness that is the light in which god's light shines a few years ago on christmas eve i preached a sermon called dream house and it was comparing the nativity scene 
to Clark Griswold's fun old-fashioned family Christmas and how you know in 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 his movie everything was happening at his house and he never felt that home once in the entire movie everything was wrong the more he tried to have this at home feeling and then in the nativity scene nobody is home and yet when we see it it's one of the most comforting images in the Christian faith, right, is like the stars not at home, and the shepherds are not at home, and the magi are not at home, and Jesus is not at home, and Mary and Joseph are fleeing, and and yet it's almost like this this obsessive attempt to make comfort happen for us takes us so far out of it. Yes, and then and then just falling into the nativity scene, it's almost like you 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 can't find home because home has been desperately trying to find you. You know, that's I mean? it. That's exactly it. He he is home. Yeah, right? wherever he is, that's that's home. And we we've got to we've got to learn to dwell with him, to dwell with the child, the vision of the child. And I think the so one of the ways to think about this is to go back to the shallow darkness and the deep darkness, the shallow darkness of suffering when you dwell on the child can become the deep darkness of sorrowing. So suffering isn't good in and of itself, but when we take suffering to heart, when we take suffering into prayer and make it intercession, it becomes sorrowing. And that is good. Mm -hmm. God doesn't want us to suffer. He does want us to go to those who are suffering and his light shines from us by the way that we are with those who are suffering and by the way that we suffer what we have to suffer to be with those who are suffering. This is what a saintly life is. It's, it's the light of God breaking forth from someone who lives with those who are suffering, even when it costs them everything. Mm. And so I think we can, if we learn how to dwell in sorrowing without dwelling in our suffering, right? So if we dwell on our suffering, we eat our own pain. We, we never, we, 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 we become hooked on cycles of pity, self-pity. But if we can go deeper through meditation on this child and his mother and the company that forms around them, if we can contemplate deeply, then our suffering can become sorrowing, and that is deep and good. That is light and not darkness, or it's the deep darkness that is the light of God, the unapproachable light of God. I think the same thing happens with affliction, right? So affliction, things that are happening to us, but that can become intercession. Affliction can come to be discipline if I know how to dwell in it. It can come to be the training God gives me, the shaping of my soul. The the affliction itself does not do the training, but it can become the occasion of me deepening myself. I walk through the affliction, but I dwell in the discipline of God. I dwell in the correction of God, the training, and and so on. I mean, I think we whatever it is that's happening in our lives, superficially, there is something there that needs to be moved through. Right? And then ultimately, of course, that's death. Like death is a shallow darkness in and of itself. It is an enemy of God. But if you dwell in the deeps of it, where God has been, you know, as I don't know if we have time for it, but if you look at Psalm 139, let's, let's do it really quickly. Just 
I guess we get to set how long this takes. But I talked about this a little bit on Sunday, but Psalm 139, we know, we all know it, right? Oh Lord, you've searched me, known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. So it starts with this kind of, I'm aware that God, you are more aware of me than I am of myself, right? You you search out my path, my lying down, even before a word is on my tongue. Oh Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, right? It's, this is a kind of darkness, the darkness of the mystery of how I am known. And so out of that darkness comes this cry, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Which can be heard as a cry of despair. Like, God, you are inescapable. Like, you are you know me better than I know myself, and I'm afraid of what you know of me that I don't know of myself. Right? I'm afraid that I'm Herod and not the Magi. I'm afraid that I'm a gut and not a wound. And you know whether or not I'm a gut or a wound, and that frightens me. So where, where could I go to escape the gaze, right? How can I get out from the divine surveillance? And that's where he says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, settle at the farthest limits of the sea, there your hand shall lead me. And that's what's so startling. That this prayer that seems to be a prayer of agony and protest, like God I need a break from your awareness of me and the way that it makes me aware of myself. And then suddenly there's this recognition that all of this is leading. That if I choose to flee from your presence, what I'll discover is that you were guiding me. You were nurturing my rebellion for my good. That's what I meant for evil, you meant for good, right? You know, that line in Joseph says it to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But the same is true of me and my own motives and my own intentions for myself. That's what this poet realizes. Like if I make my bed in hell, it's your guest room. If, if I flee like Jonah fled, I find out that you're guiding me, you're leading me, and you're holding me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is a light to you. And that, that, those verses can be translated a couple of different ways. One is, if in my despair, I'm saying all of light is being taken away from me, it's not being taken away from you. But it also can be translated, if I make the light around me darkness, it's not darkness to you. Like I, I can speak a kind of uncreative word that I have a power in my life of speaking death and not life and saying, let there be darkness instead of let there be light. But even if I do that, even if I speak that negation over myself, it's not dark to you. Like you're inside me in such a way that even my self-harming, self-destructive, self-accusing distrustfulness born out of the fear of what I th- I'm afraid I am, even that is not dark to you. And that's when the poet realizes, for it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He realizes he's gotten himself into the darkness of the womb. Right. So first he starts off at the beginning of the psalm, he's in the darkness of his self 
unawareness, what he doesn't know, the mystery of his own being. But as he prays, he ends up in the mystery of what God has made him to be in the womb. So I'm sorry, I'm carried away. No, it's amazing. And I want to I want to shout out Brewer here because a long time ago, Brewer, I was running through a sermon with you. And like usual, when I get on the phone with you, you say, oh, I haven't looked at it yet. And then you say like 10 amazing things and you say them like really animatedly and I was, we were going through Psalm 139 and Chris, I think this goes back to what I was saying before about Herod and what you were saying about wondering <clears throat> towards the end of the Psalm, you know, the Psalmist says some crazy things like, you know, uh, slay the wicked, destroy my enemies. I hate them. I loathe them, um, with complete hatred. And then he says, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be a grievous way within me and then lead me in everlasting lead me in the way of everlasting. And Chris pointed out that we get to say the truth of how we feel. In this case, I hate my enemies. I hate them. And in my case, man, I really wonder if I have some of that, you know, Herodness in me. But then that's not the final word of the psalm. Then we get to say, now, if any of that is off, show me mm-hmm. and lead me in a better way than I'm even thinking for myself. And obviously he does, right? And so I, I thought that was, uh, that, that's been, it was helpful for the sermon. It's been helpful in, in my life. And it makes sense for right now, that breath of honesty that ends in verse 22, and then search me, O God, and know my heart. Like I can tell some of what I'm venting to you might not be right. Mm-hmm. So search my heart and, and make, make, make what I'm saying better, make these thoughts better. And yeah, that's right. And notice that comes at the end of a psalm that begin with God, I wish I could escape from your searching. Oh man. Right. Like he's prayed deeply enough. It starts in anxiety. Like God, look away from me for a moment. I mean, we all know what it's like to be uncomfortable under the gaze or for someone to look at us and we just need them to look away. That's how this psalm begins. But in the end, it's inviting that look at me, Lord, you see what I can't see. Please look. That's epiphany. And I think, right. And I think too, I mean, to those, those things together there, right. Is that the psalmist is bearing down deeply enough into that darkness that the light of, of God's life illuminates the the kind of bad darkness in his own, right. Which is, so it evokes this response. Here's what's in me. And it almost feels like hearing it right now, it actually strikes me less as, confessional less as uh, a kind of you know here's what's really in my heart and more is like more so it's like it's been forced to the top precisely so it can be transformed it's Mm. it's being absolutely right it's being wrought out it's being it's being brought dug out of the depths of his heart so that it can be transformed it doesn't need to be there that's not where it can rest it's going to fester there it's going to kill you Right. But bearing down into this into this darkness, this deep darkness of God's life, this 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 ray of darkness. It it forces this stuff out to the top into into confession. Absolutely. And to to build, you've you've made this connection several times, but 
the place in which Epiphany is like Lent is that it is it is inviting God to bring to the light those things that need to be illuminated. And he's always doing that, but that always bringing to light and helping us to make light of the things that that need to be that need to be transformed. Why don't you pray for us, Brewer, and we'll end there. Yeah. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God, to you all hearts are open. And there is, there is nowhere where we can escape your gaze, your presence. And there is no note that we can play that you cannot somehow make rhyme um, for good ultimately. So Lord, I pray this for us. God, give us the grace to behold this baby in a manger. Fix our eyes, oh God. Fix our eyes. Bring us into childlikeness. We trust that this is a work that you're doing in us, even as you are creating that longing within us for such things. And so we give you thanks. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, guys, one last time. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.